What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined once again by Brandon DeCruz. Brandon, thank you for being here, man. Absolutely, brother. I'm, I'm glad to be back on, and I'm ready to take a deep dive on this topic because I know you've been interested in it, and it's something that I'm passionate about as well. I am fired up for this, too. As you mentioned just off air here, I don't think I've ever heard anyone dig into what we're about to dig into on a podcast, and really, like, there's very, very little... <laughs> science-based information out there on this as a whole. So I think it'll be super valuable for the listeners. Maybe kind of scary, but also super valuable. So um, straight up, man, you were on the podcast a couple episodes ago and you've been on pretty frequently. So I think you're good without an introduction. I'm of course going to ask you where everyone can find you and we'll link up all your stuff at the end. But let's go ahead and get right into today's topic, um, which is essentially why people regain weight after a diet and often regain more weight after a diet. So to kick things off, we hear all these different we hear all these different stats and concepts around diets and how often diets fail, etc. Can you just fill us in on what are the kind of the biggest misconceptions around these dietary failure rates? Absolutely. So like you know, we hear a ton of statistics within this industry and sometimes they're almost like a boogeyman. So we'll often hear, you know, within the nutrition industry, people will constantly throw around this specific stat. And the stat is that on average, 95% of diets fail. Right. Now, this is a statistic which is not only shocking, but it's also incredibly discouraging, which is why I'm always trying to peel back the layers of the onion so that people understand what's really meant by that statement. Because like you said, this topic that we're going to dive into post, you know, diet fat regain, is something that can be really discouraging. It could be scary. And it also could be misinterpreted when people aren't aware. So they'll almost take that dietary statistic and say, well, 95% of diets are, are doomed to fail. So I shouldn't even diet. And they almost take, right. you know, we see that in the haze culture. So, you know, uh, health at every size, they'll say, they'll utilize these statistics to say, this is why people shouldn't diet. And so when we really look at it, and this is what I'm always trying to come back to, we hear a lot of things in this industry. But I'm always encouraging, whether it be friends like you or it's my clients, let's dig a little bit deeper. Let's really look at where those statistics came from and what they actually really say. So in reality, for every seven people who start a fat loss phase, six will be successful in losing a substantial amount of weight. So the problem isn't with dieting for fat loss or weight loss. It's actually with maintaining the results after the diet. So what we actually see in the literature is that you know, in terms of the dietary rebound statistics is that within one year of finishing the, finishing a diet, only 20% of people will maintain the weight that they lost during that fat loss phase. Then when we extrapolate that out to the two-year point, that percentage of successful weight maintenance is reduced to 15%. And at three years, it's down to a measly 5%, which is why people commonly say this 95% of diets fail due to the fact that within those three years of completing a diet, 95% of dieters will have regained the body fat that they lost. Now, what's even a little bit worse than that and compounds on that fact is that out of those that have regained their weight, approximately 33 to 66% will actually regain more body fat and total body weight than they lost in the first place. So essentially what we see is people take one step forward, but then they take two steps back. And so what we really have to realize, it's not that diets fail, it's that the weight maintenance, the of dietary approaches that are taken post-diet, when people look at, this is why we have an issue with with um, restraint mindset. So people either have flexible or rigid restraint. A lot of times they look at things as black and white, on or off. Um, you know, I'm on the diet or I'm off the diet. On the bandwagon, off the bandwagon. 
And what I really try to get through to people is that we have to look at this as a continuous journey. It has to be looked at in a sustainable manner. And you have to utilize tactics that are going to be sustainable throughout the life course because this is a lifestyle change. If you, I'm not saying you have to, if you get shredded, you have to stay in that stage lean condition. I would okay. never suggest that. However, if you want to improve your life, you have to look at dieting as not just a temporary intervention, but as a improvement to your habits, to your behaviors, and to your overall lifestyle. That's such an important mindset, man. And like you're saying, it's not necessarily that, like people, you see people using this all the time as ammo, well, why even diet, right? And the problem isn't necessarily that people can't lose weight, it's that people are losing the weight and then regain it. But that's such an important point you made. It's always something I talk to my clients about as well. Like if you see this as, okay, this is my dieting, my dieting diet. Like these are my food selection when I'm dieting. And this is completely different than the rest of the year when I'm like, okay, I'm off diet. I'm going to go back to how I was eating before, right? Like we need a more well thought process than that. But the fact that people are, so as you said, like after three years, um, up to 95% of people can't have regained the weight. So this is kind of putting people in this position where, okay, they're losing weight, they are regaining weight, and then sometimes gaining more weight back. And it's kind of this vicious cycle of, um, I'm losing, I'm gaining, I'm losing, I'm gaining. People are yo-yo dieting constantly. Is there any link between the number of times you've tried to diet and your overall body fat percentage? Can you, because I know you alluded to that a bit. Can you explain for us a little bit more what you mean there? Absolutely. So we actually have a, a growing body of data that shows correlation. Now, keep in mind, when I say correlation, this does not equal causation. It means there's, there's a link, but it's not exactly causal. But there is a correlation between the amount of times someone has tried, now keyword tried, to diet and the body fat percentage they carry later in life. So what this research, if you really dig into it, what it suggests is that those who have made more attempts at dieting throughout their, their life course actually have a higher amount of body fat as every time they've tried to lose fat and have failed to maintain it, they've gained a little bit more weight than before, which is where we see that yo-yo dieting phenomenon where someone loses 20 pounds, gains 25 back, then they feel they need to go right back into a diet. And it's kind of like this uh, seesaw that they go on from weight loss to weight gain, and it's a vicious cycle. And now we actually see this demonstrated in studies looking at both non-athletic and athletic populations. And I always like to look at both sides of the coin, like, because we were speaking off air about the fact that a lot of times, you know, people within our industry will only take, you know, research from obese subjects, or they'll only take it from contest prep clients um, and case studies and that sort. And it's not applicable to everyone. So I always try to get a mix, if there is mixed research on different populations so that I could see how it applies to the clients that I work with because I work with everyone from top level IFBB pros to just like Susie soccer mom. You know what I mean? So I'm always trying to look at things that are applicable to different, you know, genres. So when it comes to like my lifestyle or my gen pop clients, we actually have research that looks at pairs of twins to which, and to see how, you know, dieting attempts impact their weight regain later in life. And the reason that they did it in twins was actually to control for a bit of the genetic variability between people. And what they saw was that within two pairs of twins, the twin that who had dieted more throughout the course of their lives ended up gaining more fat across their lifetime as compared to their twin who had the same genetics, same family background, same parents, but didn't attempt as many diets. So that kind of shows, hey, we're going to take, we're going to extrapolate the genes from this. And it really is the dieting attempts could lead to a higher body fat later in life. 
Now, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I wanted to look into athletic populations. So now when it comes to, say, like my competitors or, you know, other athletes that I work with, I actually see research in athletes that those athletes that were in weight-restricted sports where they had to diet down to make a weight class, such as in wrestling, MMA, we actually see this, especially in gymnastics, things that are weight-restricted, you have to be really light, that mm-hmm. those who had to diet for a weight class ended up gaining more weight after their career is over as compared to athletes in their same sports who did not have to diet to make a weight class. So it's important to note that dieting to lose fat does not inherently make us fatter, nor is it ineffective for fat loss because like as I hit on before, you know, six out of seven people will lose a significant amount of body fat. So if we look at that from a percentage perspective, 86% of people can lose body fat. But you know, the issue is more so the approach that you take, which can contribute to you either maintaining a lower body fat percentage after the diet has finished or regaining what you lost during the dieting process and potentially gaining more fat than you had to begin with via that body fat overshooting effect that happens after a diet, which we're going to dive deeper into. Okay, absolutely. Now, please feel free to just tell me if this is us skipping way ahead um, and you want to cover this later on instead. But is that, is your thought as far as, because I was going to ask as well, like, okay, they see this in maybe gym pop people, but I'm glad you brought up the very trained individuals, like an athletic population also. Um, and that's super interesting that it was more relegated to the people who had actually had to cut weight or like be at a specific weight. Are you thinking that's just because that's probably based, and again, please feel free to let me know if this is just us getting ahead. But is that probably based on the fact they had to diet a lot more aggressively and lost more muscle mass? Do you think that would be a contributing factor? Yeah, so this is more so observational research. So what a lot of what the researchers postulated or some of like their conclusions or their thoughts around it were that they were being pushed way past, way below their body fat set. So essentially what was happening was, especially like in MMA, we see this in wrestling, we see this in boxing is that they take extreme methods to get to that weight class. Mm-hmm. So if you know, I've worked personally with a couple guys that, that fight in like leagues like Bellator or like semi-professional fighting. Okay. And a lot of times these guys, when they haven't utilized a nutritionist or a nutrition coach, they utilize extreme methods. So we're talking sauna, we're talking uh, extreme carb depletion, we're talking right. the week of the fight going without, you know, I'll tell you, I had, I lived with a national champion wrestler in college and they used to suck on lemons the week of their, of their um, weigh-in. <laughs> And now we have to think about it. It's the amount of times you've dieted throughout your time course. So a lot of people think, oh, well, I diet every year. I must be like susceptible to this. Not exactly. When we think about sports, this is a very cyclical kind of diet. So think about it theoretically. I know a lot of guys that fight in lighter weight classes, say 135. And we can even extrapolate this to like a Conor McGregor or a Frankie Edgar or any of these top UFC champions. You'll often right. see that they walk around in the off season, quote unquote, or during camp, about 20 to 25 pounds over their fighting weight. Now, they're never really at that fighting weight except for the weigh-in. So what we see is they essentially crash diet right into the competition, they make weight, and then they regain right away. They start reeding, right. and, and a lot of times, we'll look at someone like, I was a big fan of George St. Pierre, who was a uh, okay. light, lightweight champion. And he used to fight about 10 to 15 pounds over his stage weight within 24 hours of weighing in. So we know that's not his fighting weight. Now let's extrapolate that to college sports. These guys do not have, you know, guys and girls, they do not have, you know, first of all, the financial incentives behind them. They don't have the type of teams and advanced coaching, nutrition, all those things covered. So they're taking even more extreme things. Plus, if you ever look at their schedule, they're so extensive in terms of how many matches that they have. So it's almost like they're on a 
weekly weight cycle, like restrict binge cycle every single week. So a lot of times I'll tell you from my own perspective, having went to school to play college sports is I would see guys Monday through Friday, essentially starve themselves in over exercise. Then Saturday they would weigh in, then they would eat up as much as possible. They would compete. And then Saturday night we'd be out of the bar. So it's like that type of weekly weight cycle. You have to think right. about that. That plays a lot of, that essentially is creating metabolic adaptation. So Monday through Friday, they suppress their metabolism. Um, you know, we're seeing a suppression, resting metabolic rate in need and total energy expenditure. And then they're refeeding when their body's more susceptible to fat gain. So we're seeing this constant yo-yo. So that's really what this research is pointing to and why these guys, first of all, we see them at 135 or say 150 pounds, but then once they go into a place or they go into a period of time in their lives when A, they're not as active, B, they don't have a weight class to make, C, you know, they're, they have a family or, you know, there was just an interesting research study that I posted and it was about um, metabolism throughout the, t the, the life course. And they showed that your metabolism actually does not change from the ages of 20 to 60. However, a lot of people have this misconception that all of a sudden they got into their 30s and their metabolism slowed down and their total daily energy expenditure is lower so that they're gaining fat as a result. The thing is that our metabolism starts at its highest when we're a baby and we're going through our greatest growth processes. It decreases a little bit during our teenage years, but we're still so active, lack of responsibility, lack of stress, we're still sleeping a lot and we are undergoing a lot of tissue growth that it's still elevated. And then it, it goes down just a little bit, but it stays constant. When we look at it through doubly labeled water and we look in contr randomized control studies, our, our metabolic rate is, is at a baseline it's that is consistent you know, um, level. However, what changes is our lifestyle. So say you went from being that college athlete, restricting yourself, exercising hours a day, and now you go into the real world and you have a family and you're not exercising, you're eating poorly, and all these things compound upon itself so that you are regaining weight. So I think it's a mixture of poor dieting practices. And when we go later on into the body fat overshooting effect, you're going to see it is as a result of, you know, poor dieting practices and aggressive mm -hmm. dieting. But it's also the fact that their lifestyle has completely changed. So they were over-restricting, over-exercising. And then they went from that state to under-exercising, under-moving, you know, not expending a lot of calories and then over-consuming. Right. But I would even say like for a gym pop listener, that's probably like what you laid out there as far as your buddies like in college, where it's five days a week, I'm dieting super hard. I'm exercising a ton. And then there's like two days where I'm just crushing the food. Like that's straight up how a lot of people that aren't athletes are dieting and living their lives as well. So I think this is still very applicable. So you talked, you mentioned body fat overshooting. There the body fat overshooting effect a couple of times here. Can you explain to us what is that? Yes. Yeah, so this is something we actually only see this term in the literature, but once I explain it, you're going to understand it. And everyone out there is going to say, fuck, I've, I've, I've understood this. I've seen this in person. Now I understand exactly what I'm talking about or what I'm looking at or what I've experienced myself. Cause I'll tell you, I've underwent this after a contest. So the body fat overshoot is essentially a process after dieting where you regain more fat mass after finishing you know, the, the fat loss piece in and of itself, then you lost during it. So when we, we diet, we not only lose fat mass, but we lose lean mass as well. And this loss in fat mass and lean mass are, you know, responsible for some of the metabolic adaptations that we see, which we covered on our last episode, such as a decrease in leptin, a decreased resting metabolic rate, an increase in hunger hormones like ghrelin.
Now, one of the largest downstream effects we see from losing lean mass is what's called hyperphagia. And all hyperphagia is, it's a scientific term for extreme feelings of hunger that continue to persist. So what we see in the literature is that this hyperphagia is actually most closely linked to how much lean mass that you've lost. Now, what we have to keep in mind is that lean mass is not just muscle. It does include muscle, but it also includes organ tissue and water weight, as well as glycogen. So these tissues are all lost during the course of dieting, especially if you don't take you know, a very meticulous and strategic approach to dieting. So what this research, this line of research shows is that you will continue to experience this persistent hunger until you regain the lean mass that you've lost during the diet itself. Now, here's the thing. This is the drawback to this whole thing. And this is why that they've termed this the body fat overshoot effect. You know, this increased drive to eat often results, results in overeating and people taking in far too high of a calorie intake post-diet, which causes you to regain a ton of body mass almost immediately post-diet. Now, the issue with this is that that rapid body mass regain is mostly fat mass because fat mass is accrued a lot quicker than muscle tissue. So just like if we think about it logically, when you go into a gaining phase, you have to go at a much lower rate of gain than you would during a fat loss phase in terms of your rate of loss. It's so much easier to lose, or it's so much quicker rather, to lose body fat than it is to gain lean muscle tissue. And this happens the same way, way on the inverse when trying to regain tissue. So what ends up happening is you're regaining more fat per unit of you know pound you know, uh, gained than you are lean mass. So what ends up happening is a lot of times people will overshoot their amount and they'll end up gaining more fat than, you know, than they had to begin with. And this is something that every one of us has seen with, especially with yo-yo dieters, we'll see someone lose a quick 20 pounds for the summer or for a vacation. And they'll do so in this quick and drastic manner only to go back on that vacation, overeat. And then, you know, quicker than you, than you realize you're 25 or 30 pounds up. And then it starts this, this vicious cycle of, you know, weight loss and weight regain, which is often accompanied by these cycles of binging and restricting. And we even see it like you were mentioning previously in these like shorter term, which I refer to people as like a weekday dieter Monday through Friday, you know, they're distracted with their jobs, they're busy. And then the weekend comes around and they're going out and they're over consuming and they think that they're dieting, but they're essentially negating their deficit all week. So they never lose anything. And we see that constantly, but it gets extrapolated even more so once you've been in a dieting phase because your body's predisposed to gaining fat. And so we see this body fat overshooting effect where people are continuing to diet over their life course, but they're getting fatter in the process. And if you actually look at the statistics, the average person gains one to two pounds per year. And it's usually in these, these small time periods. We see it most, most notably in the holiday time period where people just rapidly accrue body fat and sometimes people will have been in a lean state, but now they've, they've quickly accrued more tissue than they lost in the first place. So crazy. But I, again, I think that everyone listening to that probably was like, fuck, I, I've been there myself. I think most of us can relate as I know I've been there like multiple times, lose 30 pounds, trying to, or whatever, go super low carb and just get it off as quickly as I can. Like, I remember there was one very clear time. The first time I actually lost a significant amount of weight. And this is what spurred me to learn more about nutrition was I just completely cut carbs. I was fasting as long as I could every day. I changed the way I was training from lifting to kind of like lifting in circuits, but I wasn't focused on strength. <laughs> and I remember 
ending that diet, like, fuck, first of all, I just look skinny fat now, but I think I lost 30 pounds and I gained back 45 within the next few months. And it was, I've been there. So my question for you, I've heard the only person I've heard talk about this as we talked about before is Eric Trexler in the metabolic adaptation manual. Is this something that like this, is there any research kind of demonstrating this body fat overshoot effect? Yeah. You know, what's funny about that is we, we did discuss this before is I've never heard anyone hit on this. And I think it's because this line of literature has only started coming to the limelight in the last few years. There was a lot of case studies early on that were more so looked at for for metabolic adaptation. And a lot of times the follow-ups to the actual studies, like the post-diet periods, they were in the actual text of the studies, but no one really analyzed the results. They focused so heavily what happened during the diet. So... You know, it's, it's funny. We only have a few studies that actually monitor this effect as many dieting studies, like I mentioned, are done just on the weight loss intervention itself and not nearly as many do close follow-ups on what happens after their diet, which in my opinion is a huge mistake because as we know, diets, diets work and are effective. Um, so most don't struggle nearly as much with losing fat as they do with maintaining their fat loss, which is why I'm always trying to like dig into research, but also with trying different methods on my clients to see what is the best method of weight loss maintenance because that's what people really struggle with so much of the work around body fat overshooting and this rebounding post-diet has been done by one researcher and his name's Delu, who has done who has analyzed multiple tightly controlled studies on humans and looked at weight regain after they finished a period of caloric restriction so the most well-known of these studies which i'm sure you're familiar with is the minnesota semi-starvation experiment um, you know, that's something that everyone points to for the metabolic adaptation side of things. Right. You know, and they'll always analyze the data in terms of what happened during the diet to these guys. But actually, that was a case study done with conscientious, conscientious objectors to World War II, where they were put on a close to 50% deficit for about six months. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is they actually, that study was not done to, to see metabolic adaptation. It was to see what were the effects in a concentration camp and how to refeed these people that were coming back from World War II and how the effect would happen in terms of refeeding them in the post-concentration um, camp environment. And that's why they right. utilize these people. So a lot of people we, you know, in the fitness industry were only focused on the diet. We only focus on fat loss. So you look at that study and they look at the, how much the resting metabolic rate dropped and all those things. And I think they're really applicable. I think there's a lot of good information that we get from that study because it was the first controlled study on that type of experiment. However, right. if we really look at the end of the dieting portion of that study, there's a lot of data that's applicable to what we, we see in the post-dieting scenario. So in that study specifically, we saw that subjects lost about an average of 25% of their body weight. But once they were allowed to refeed on an ablutum diet, which essentially means eating till satiation, they, they quickly went back up to their original fat mass and then actually overshot that by an average of 3.3 kilos of body fat due to the insatiable hunger that they experienced during that post-dieting period. Now, that's a study from the 40s. So a lot of times people will say, well, maybe that's not applicable. You know, um, it's it's not as relevant to what we're dealing with now. Okay, so so they've done other tightly controlled studies more recently. So more recently, we have studies that look at subjects in Army Ranger School, which you know display a similar body fat overshooting effect. Um, there's a study in I believe 2007 by Nindle that um, looked at soldiers in Army Ranger School. That And what they did essentially was they put these guys in a thousand calorie deficit while they were doing a ton of expenditure through their military training. 
And then after finishing ranger school, the subjects regain and overshot their original weight by five kilograms with a significant portion of that coming from fat. So think about it. They regained all the weight that they had lost in the process of dieting. They not only right. did that, but they regained 11 pounds of fat mass on top right. of the body fat that they had to begin with. So that's the first one that we had that, that really showed that. Then they did another one by Friedel, which observed a very similar body fat overshoot effect when participants were ray-fed after maintaining a 1,000-calorie deficit. So in both of these cases, they were between 1,000 or uh, 1,200 calories, I believe. And essentially what they saw was, what they were really trying to see was how does um, periods of caloric restriction and then refeeding essentially manipulate hormones. So really, this was a really applicable study of metabolic adaptation. And what they saw was that the refeeding helped to restore and normalize all their blood markers. So their testosterone came back up, their thyroid came back up, cortisol, all those things came up uh, within one month of increasing food intake besides their fat mass, which can, they continue to gain fat after one month mark. So overall, they overshot their original weight by 2.4 kilograms with 40% of that coming purely from body fat. So we see like in, in these controlled studies that people are going on aggressive deficits. You know, they're losing, say they're in a thousand calorie deficit, losing an average of two pounds per week. Now, when you really think about that, in, in our scenario, because we are educated physique coaches, most of us wouldn't put someone in a thousand calorie deficit. But for your right. average gen pop client, I can't tell you how many people have just told me, oh, I want to lose two to three pounds per week. Well, they're going into a thousand calorie more deficit. So right. we see that even just in that case, they're, they're subjecting themselves to a thousand calorie deficit. These are well-trained individuals. They're losing a substantial amount of tissue and then regaining all that they lost and more. And what they're really gaining is body fat. So interesting, man. And again, <laughs> such a, I think very relatable. It's interesting around the Minnesota, of uh, the Minnesota semi-starvation experiment, because you do only hear that in regards to, Hey, this is why your metabolism doesn't break. Right. And I wasn't even aware that that was actually the purpose of the study. One thing I'm not super clear on. So I imagine the listeners aren't either is what, what is it that makes us so much more likely to regain this fat so quickly um, or so much quicker than muscle post diet? Can you just dig into that a little bit more? Yeah. So there's a multitude of reasons. So I hit on the, the biggest one. The biggest one is that if you lose lean body mass during the course of a diet, you are going to be more susceptible to regaining body fat. But if that was it alone, then once we got to that state of reaccruing our lean body mass, we'd be set. We would stop regaining fat. The the hyperphagia or that extreme hunger would go away. But what I find is that a lot of people exiting a diet have this mindset where they think that there's this post-diet anabolic rebound where they're all of a sudden like primed for muscle gain. I'll tell mm -hmm. you, this is something that's, you know, I've been in the physique coaching industry for a long time. I've worked with a lot of bodybuilders. That's something that's extremely prominent in that, that area. So a lot of times people will think that they're, they're getting this anabolic post-rebound. Post and if there's any tissue, honestly, that's primed in anabolic post-diet, it's actually your adipose tissue, which is your fat mm -hmm. cells, which a lot of people don't realize. And so after you finish a diet, your body is essentially primed for fat storage from a, essentially a, from a survival aspect due to a lot of the metabolic adaptations that we spoke about uh, on our last podcast. So let's think about all the metabolic adaptations that happen when we go into a diet. Your resting metabolic rate has lowered. Your total daily energy expenditure, which is the amount of calories you burn per day, has significantly dropped. You know, your maintenance calorie level has significantly decreased. So the amount of calories that you need, and we, we discussed this last time, that you need to sustain your weight is substantially less than it was previously. 
we see down regulations in hormones. We see that in metabolic hormones like thyroid production, which not only impacts metabolic rate, but also your energy expenditure. We see that in your steroid hormones. So things like testosterone and estrogen, which is why a lot of guys lose their libido and women lose their menstrual cycle. We see that catabolic hormones like cortisol are increased while any catabolic hormones like insulin and IGF-1 are decreased. Um, we spoke about the fact that you're more efficient at exercise. So now you're burning less calories per unit of exercise or per unit of movement during exercise. Um, we spoke about the biggest aspect of metabolic adaptation, which is neat, which accounts for about 85 to 90% of metabolic adaptation. And we right. see up to a 500 calorie decrease per day in certain individuals. So right then, if you were in a 500 calorie deficit, your, your calorie deficit is negated and you got to go even deeper. We also see that your main hunger hormone, ghrelin, is increased while satiety hormones like leptin and peptide YY have dropped. And so all these things kind of, they create like this, this perfect storm for fat regain. And the biggest change that happens that a lot of people don't realize, nor do they take into consideration, is that your insulin sensitivity goes up during a diet. Now, generally people look at this and they, they hear this and they say, that's great. And believe me, I, I track that with my, my clients and look at their blood glucose, but we only think of what's called peripheral insulin sensitivity. And insulin sensitivity okay. was what actually what a part that we hit on in our first podcast, but we spoke about it from the level of the muscle tissue, which is what peripheral tissue is. Now, right. yes, we increase insulin sensitivity at the level of the muscle, but also we increase it at the level of the adipose tissue, which means your fat cells become more insulin sensitive as well. So essentially how this happens is when you lose fat, your fat cells shrink, which thus increase their insulin sensitivity. So since you've essentially not only shrunken your fat cells, but you've de depleted them of their energy stores, these adipocytes or these fat cells are now primed to recover that energy and do so by increasing the uptake of fatty acids, which are fats, and then glucose through carbohydrates when you consume them in excess. So say you go into a, a surplus, now instead of the, those excess calories going into more muscle tissue, they're more being predisposed and you know, partitioned towards fat storage because that's your most depleted stores. So, you know, what I really try to get across to clients is because we, we all want better blood markers and we're tracking these things. And when people hear insulin sensitivity, they think it's a good thing, which it is. But we have to realize that for every give me, there's a gotcha. You know, for every positive, there's a negative. So with that comes some insulin sensitivity that could be deleterious to fat regain, which is why it's important to be cautious. So, you know, oftentimes I'll use analogies with clients because I think that's it works best for people's minds. So I try to get people to think about it like this. Your fat cells are kind of like sponges. So think about like a full fat cell as a, a sponge that you take and you put it into a bucket of water. And then if you were to take it out, it's fully drenched with water and you try to pick up a spill on the counter, you, would be, you wouldn't be able to take up any more water because it's completely full. That's exactly like when your fat cells are outside of a diet before you start a diet. Now, if you were to take and wring out a sponge completely, it's completely dry. That's kind of like what your fat cells are like once you've completed a diet. They're at its smallest point and they're depleted. So when you go to try to pick up that same liquid on the counter with that dried out sponge, you suck up everything completely and it holds onto it, which is essentially what your fat cells do with you know the excess calories and nutrients that you take in after a diet. So basically what we're looking at is a situation where your likelihood for fat gain is really high and you need to re you know, recover your metabolic rate and all these hormones to be able to get back to a state where you can build muscle, which is why you're so much more predisposed to gaining fat than you are muscle post-diet. But like I said, 
the number one reason as to why we experience this body fat overshoot is because we've lost lean mass, which includes muscle mass. So if you're in a situation where you're in your least likely, you know, you're in your least optimal state to gain muscle and your most optimal state to gain fat, when you overfeed and you overshoot, you have cheat meals post-diet and you eat in excess and you don't reestablish your maintenance calorie intake, most of that is going towards fat storage. So interesting. Um, real quick, I want to ask you relative to the topic of P ratio, is there, especially like when we're talking about the insulin sensitivity of these fat cells, again, improving along with muscle cells, is there kind of a, Hey, this is so like, again, you would hear, okay, for most dudes, like below 10% body fat, let's say that's when your body is going to, um, preferentially more calories to come in as fat versus shuttling them to your muscles, right? Because your body just needs more fat to improve all these hormones and be healthy and closer to like 15%, I believe is kind of the generalized number that's thrown out for women. Do you think like when we're talking about this topic, is there any merit to that? Like, Hey, once you're below this certain point, this is a lot more likely to happen. Or are these adaptations kind of like, okay, no matter what, like, let's say you were 30% body fat, you drop down to 25% body fat. These adaptations are going to be just as severe. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I see it almost uh, as far as I'm getting your question, I see it almost like a sliding scale. I think it's, we have to realize that like we spoke about on our last podcast, metabolic adaptation comes the severity of metabolic adaptation comes from two things, the size of your deficit and the level of body fat that you get to, or the amount of body fat that you've lost in total. So for instance, if you're someone that stays around 15% body fat, you're around, it's say your, your set point. It's something that you're very comfortable at. It's your body's, body's comfortable and homeostatic baseline of body fat. And you go down to between 10 and 12% body fat. I feel that you'd be able to recover a lot more sensibly or a lot um, easier than someone going from 20 or 25 to 15%, despite the fact that you're substantially leaner at 10% because most likely you were able to take a less aggressive approach to get to that place. So we have to think about the aggressiveness or the severity of the deficit, the, the method in which you took to get there, how much muscle tissue you lost in the process and how lean you got. I'll tell you, the people I see most predisposed to body fat overshooting are competitors because they've gotten so lean. But at the same time, those are the ones that it might not be as deleterious. And I'll tell you why. So there is a study that we'll go through that looks at post-competition uh, dieters. However, if you've gotten to 4% body fat and you overshoot by 5%, you might just get yourself in a healthy range. You might get yourself right. back up to 10, but you overshot 5%, you're at 15%. You're still in a metabolically healthy range. You have good insulin sensitivity, good triglycerides, your blood markers are looking good. You're aerobically fit. However, if you're someone that went from 30% body fat to 20% body fat in a yo-yo dieting fashion where you substantially dropped calories, you know, you did excessive cardio, you didn't prioritize weight training and muscle retention, and then you took an overshot and went past your body fat set point and you went to 35% body fat, despite not having been at such a lean percentage of body fat as the original competitor, you're in a worse spot overall. So I really think it's almost like a sliding scale and it's also individualized. So we see that even in overfeeding studies that the response that people have to overfeeding is extremely variable. Um, so it's, it's genetically independent. So we have a, an overfeeding study, actually it's one of my favorite studies by Levine in 99 and he overfed individuals for eight weeks by a thousand calories. And what he saw was that the difference between weight gain was tenfold. So some people in the face of overfeeding for a thousand calories for eight weeks only gained 0.8 pounds. 
And some individuals gained 9.8 pounds. And at the same point, he saw that that was due to a difference in need. So some individuals, you know, some poor bastards, actually downregulated their expenditure by about 90 calories in the face of all these, this energy. But other individuals, there was uh, you know, a few individuals that almost increased their meat and their energy expenditure by 700 calories. So think about that. The one person on the, well, the one side of the spectrum, they just made this 1,000 calorie surplus and 1,100 calorie surplus per day. The other individual just cut a 1,000 calorie surplus to a 300 calorie surplus. So it's, it's really individual, but really when it comes down to, you know, P ratios is something that's been debated, especially recently. Um, when you actually look into the literature on the P ratio, you'll see that the original data by Forbes that was done a long time ago was mostly done on anorexics. So um, mm. it's, it's really not an applicable, it was, they were not weight training, you know, and they were looking at people and they used to say that if you got leaner, you could gain muscle easier or you would gain right. more lean tissue. For every unit, the P ratio is essentially how much for every pound of muscle or a pound of body weight, how much is muscle and how much is fat? It's a partition ratio. So what they used to say is if you were leaner, you were more likely to gain more lean mass than you were to gain fat mass, which sounds good in theory, but that only applies to people that start off very lean. That does not apply to someone that's dieted down to a lean state, such in the case as competition bodybuilders, because if not, we would see in the, in the trials that they gain preferentially fat-free mass rather than fat mass, and that's just not the case. And I'm sure we can get very sidetracked with this, but it is so crazy how, like with the P ratio discussion, especially more and more, it seems like so much of that doesn't really have an applicable foundation, but it's something that I know for me for years, it was just like a given like, oh yeah, here's the P ratio we had needed to adhere to these principles. So interesting how that works out. Um, so, so much of what you talk about is how important retention of lean muscle tissue is. So how are you kind of explaining to clients this difference between weight loss and fat loss and why it matters. Yes. Yeah, so you know what? A lot of people, they don't realize that there's a massive difference between the two. And so when they look at something like weight loss and look at fat loss, they, they think of it as one in the same essentially. They think of the fact that, you know, if I'm losing a pound of tissue, it must be, you know, they're not really concerned. They're so preoccupied with how much is, um, how much weight is being left off the scale. Now, if we actually look at it, you know, off the top of my head, I don't know the math, but essentially when we look at a pound of fat, it's about 454 grams, I believe. And so if you did 454 grams times nine, you know, nine calories per gram, you would see that a pound of fat is about 3,500 calories. It's a little bit under that, but we round it up and that's why it's a 3,500 calorie rule. So if you were to lose a pound of just purely fat, 30, if you were to go into a deficit and put a 3,500 calorie deficit and you lost a pound of just fat mass, you would lose, yeah, 3,500 calories would equal a pound of fat mass. However, what a lot of people don't realize is that lean tissue, muscle tissue, is not mostly muscle. It's mostly water. It's about 20 to 30% muscle. So if you were to lose, you know, to lose a pound of fat-free tissue, to lose a pound of muscle is only 700 calories. So if you were to lose 3,500 calories of weight, let's say just weight, you would lose five pounds of lean tissue. So sometimes people are looking at their scale and they're saying, oh, I lost three pounds this week. And they're really, they're focusing so heavily on those numbers on the scale, not realizing that they might be losing more um, muscle tissue than they are fat. And then they're predisposing themselves to that body fat overshooting effect. And that's why I'm, I'm constantly trying to reiterate the fact that it isn't about how much weight that you lose on the scale. A lot of times I'm trying to get my, um, my clients to recomp essentially into the, the diet itself or during the dieting phase itself. And I'm trying to make sure that muscle retention is of the utmost importance because 
that is what we should be prioritizing because it's not only going to lead to a better body composition, but it's going to lead to a better retention of those results that they actually got. And that's why we have to think about it and we have to disregard weight. You know, it's a good metric to track on an average to see what type of deficit you're in. But if you're solely focused, and that's something I find, especially with women, they're so solely focused on the weight and the weight loss per week that they kind of disregard what is the quality of that weight loss. Let's not just look at quantitative metrics. Let's look at qualitative metrics because let's think about it. Like I said, a pound of fat is 3,500 calories. A pound of muscle is 700 calories. A pound of water is zero calories. So I could lose a pound on the scale. could have been zero calories worth. I mean, so it's we got to think things a little bit more through and realize it's about quality, not quantity. And I really feel that when we um, take that mindset and we really prioritize that over just chasing a scale, we're looking at other, you know, I like people looking at progress photos. I want to see their training performance. I want to make sure that they're maintaining strength in the gym. All these metrics that show they're not only improving in terms of what they look like, but also how their performance is, which is a good indicator that we're retaining muscle mass. Absolutely. And I love how you describe this as the quality of that weight loss or fat loss rather than the quantity. I know I have the same conversation with clients all the time. It's like, Hey, you think of one client I was just talking to last night, like, Hey, my weight hasn't changed at all this entire process. So then we dug into, okay, let's look at how much stronger you've gotten. Let's look at your body measurements. And then we were talking about like, okay, so how are your clothes are fitting? Just like, well, my pants are like falling off me. Like my clothes have never fit like this in my life. It's like, yeah, that, that is exactly what we're looking for here, right? That's the quality that we want rather than just, if we're just fixated on, okay, well, the scale isn't changing, so that's not being successful. Like in this case, the fact that the scale isn't changing a ton is probably telling us, but your measurements are changing a lot. It's probably telling us we're being more successful, right? hundred percent. So there's a lot of times that I have clients that I'm very big into body recomposition. So mm-hmm. if I have someone that's from, and, and this is something I often get into uh, discussions with my clients with, and it's a touchy subject, but and I'm sure you can relate to this as a coach, Jeremiah. A lot of people, they, they confuse the amount of years that they've spent in the gym, and I understand that's an investment, but the amount of years they've spent in the gym with their level of advancement. So they say, okay. oh, I've been in the gym three to five years, I'm advanced. Listen, I always try to get back to my clients with this. Believe me, I've been training for, 16 years. You do not want to be advanced. What advancement means right. is you have to nail more of the nuances. You make a much slower rate of progress. You see a lot less noticeable changes and it's much harder to lose body fat and put on muscle at the same time. So embrace being a beginner, embrace being an intermediate because you have the highest likelihood of recomping and actually really substantially changing your body without much movement on the scale. And that's where I'm really trying to prioritize nailing all these different variables, which will improve their ability to accrue tissue while losing body fat. Because we see in so many controlled studies that, excuse me, that body recomposition is possible, especially when you nail all the variables, your pre and post workout nutrition, your sleep, your training stimulus, you know, your, your um, rate of loss in terms of body fat, all these different things. When you control for all those variables, a lot of people can increase muscle tissue and decrease body fat. And that's going to make the most substantial um, change in terms of your actual physique. And that's what people are looking for. When people look for, they're going into a diet. And they, want, they want to lose, they always say they want to lose weight. No, you want to lose body fat. You want to retain or build muscle. And so we have to get away from this whole weight loss. And that's why I often categorize things as fat loss. When I look at statistics, I'm looking at fat loss. When I'm looking at regain, I'm not just looking at weight gain. because. And that's why if you hear me quote these studies, I'm telling you what the fat mass increase was. I'm not telling you the total weight because weight includes glycogen replenishment. It includes um, 
water weight. It includes food volume. It includes, you know, food volume and food residue in the gut, all these different things. What I care about is what are the determinants that are going to most heavily influence your look, which is your fat mass and your fat-free mass. And that's what's most important. So that's what we really want to prioritize and make sure that we're really driving home with clients and making them realize, listen, you might have been in the gym a long time, but you have so much room left on the table. I'm always telling clients, we're trying to you know, extend that runway as much as possible. So let's prioritize that. Let's really optimize this. And let's look at this as it's not just about the scale weight. I don't really care what your scale weight is. I'm going to track it just to make sure from a caloric density perspective. And also I want to track menstrual cycle fluctuations and different things. And I also utilize daily scale weight to, to create a weekly average because I want them to detach themselves from those weekly scale weigh-ins where they see these, they might see these massive fluctuations. When you get used to something day in and day out, it is more of a desensitization process. So you detach yourself from the scale because you're used to, oh, my weight is supposed to fluctuate one to two pounds, three or four pounds. You know, I have women that fluctuate eight to 10 pounds during the menstrual cycle. And a lot of them prior to me, they were always scared to step on the scale. And if they had went up eight pounds within a week, they would have freaked out. But they know that when they look at their average weekly scale weight, oh, it's a three pound fluctuation due to, due to my menstrual cycle. You know, yes, it was eight pounds one day, but it averaged out to two to three pounds. So we really have to focus more on the qualitative aspect than just the quantitative aspects. I love data. I love numbers. But really, at the end of the day, no one that you see at the beach, no one at your photo shoot and no one at your contest is asking you, hey, what's your weight on the scale this morning? They're, they're looking at your physique and assessing, did it improve or did it not? I couldn't agree more, man. And I will say I was just having I was on a call right before this and we we're chatting about I think for most women, not to be stereotypical, but for most women, like the weight that they have their goal physique at typically tends to be a little bit higher than they'd expect. And for most natural dudes, I think it tends to be a little bit lower than they would expect. Um, just from my anecdotal observations. No, I'll agree with that 100%. I have, I'll tell you, I've, I've worked with a lot of female clients, and uh, especially contest prep clients and photo shoot clients and, and gals that are really trying to get to another level. And oftentimes they'll tell me, at the end, we'll get close to the photo shoot. We'll be a couple of weeks out and they'll, they'll start, they'll have a little freak out. Moment. And we're all susceptible to that. We're all our worst enemies, especially at the end of the diet where, you know, physiologically and psychologically, we're not in the best place. And they'll tell me, well, coach, I was 121 pounds last season. And now we're at 130. We only have three weeks to go. How am I going to drop nine pounds? And I always tell them, right. you're not dropping nine pounds. The goal is not to get back on stage where you were. The goal is to get back on stage or at your photo shoot or at your vacation or your wedding in the best shape of your life. I don't care about your weight. So let's look at it. If you come on stage five, six pounds heavier, we've gained lean and you're leaner, we've gained lean tissue. That is a awesome indicator that you've gained tissue and that you've done things right and that you've dieted in a more sustainable and also in a healthier manner where you maintain more of your lean mass and lost more fat mass. So that is a victory in my book generally. And that's why I'm always trying to detach them. When people come to me with a goal and they say, I want to lose 30 pounds. I'm always reframing that and saying, we want to lose a substantial amount of body fat. And I don't even let them put a percentage unless they're a competitor because honestly, DEXA, BIA, BODPOD, none of those things are incredibly accurate. We see a two to 5% discrepancy between any of those measurements. And in reality, the, the gold standard is DEXA. However, we see the most readily, you know, um, accurate readings actually from caliper readings if done by a qualified professional. So it's mm-hmm. something that it doesn't matter. No one is, is pinching you and testing your body fat. Believe me, I've competed at the national level and I've had guys go to the Olympia. No one has pinched them and, and looked at their body fat. They've said, is this guy shredded or not? And that's really right. the, the predominant thing. I love it. So to bring this back to body fat overshooting, 
Are there any other factors you haven't touched on that kind of help contribute to the reason that our body is just a lot more predisposed to gaining fat post diet? Or do you feel like you kind of nailed that already? Yeah, all those factors that I named before, you know, all the metabolic adaptations, I suggest anyone that's listening to this to go back to our episode so you really understand what I'm referring to when I, when I say the term metabolic adaptation and what happens during the process of dieting. And it naturally happens. This is a survival response by the body to conserve energy. So those in addition to the insulin sensitivity one, which a lot of people don't expect, as well as the loss of lean mass, which is, is something actually in the um, latter portion of our podcast I covered, you know, how to mitigate metabolic adaptation. One of them was, you know, a solid resistance training program that would help with the retention of muscle mass, as well as uh, a very sound macronutrient composition to maintain lean mass, because those are, are super important, not only for the dieting perspective and to preserve resting metabolic rate and energy expenditure during a diet, but also to help with avoiding the body fat overshooting effect after Okay. That makes complete sense. So then one other thing I want to make sure we put to bed because I know I fell victim to this personally was the idea of the anabolic rebound, right? Like I, that diet we mentioned <laughs> earlier where I had lost all that weight. I remember listening to a podcast and they were talking about the post diet period be the most anabolic time. That's where you're going to get this almost steroid like effect and you just gain back. You can gain a ton of muscle, super tissue, muscle tissue super quickly. It's like, oh, hell yeah. All right. So, and that was a big part of it, right? I was just smashing food. I saw the scale go up like 10 pounds. Let's go. Like, I just gained 10 pounds of lean muscle only, no doubt. When in, the, in reality, that wasn't at all what was happening. But so, just to clarify for anyone listening, this idea that there is an anabolic rebound post diet. Is that true or false? It isn't at all. And I hate that I have to dispel this myth because for <laughs> years I, I was susceptible to, and I believed in this myself. So when I first started competing, we didn't have reverse dieting. We had very few coaches. So we used to hear that within the bodybuilding community. You would see mm -hmm. that in magazines. You would see all these things. And honestly, unfortunately, it comes more out of the bodybuilding lore. So we see these guys that are on anabolics and they're utilizing things that will help to restore or to help prevent or mitigate some of those metabolic adaptations. So they're not seeing as much as suppression of their energy expenditure, their hormones are kept in range. They're not suffering from low thyroid and all these other effects. Now, when it comes to a natural athlete and you've you know gone through the process of dieting, you are going to incur metabolic adaptations. And that's most of the people that I work with are natural athletes. Right. And so, and, and that applies to my gen pop and my lifestyle clients all around. So when we're in that post diet, period, the anabolic phase of that is actually your adipose. It's your fat tissues anabolic to sucking up nutrients. Now your muscle tissue, because there are so many down regulations from dieting. So think about it. If for a male, your testosterone's at cash rate levels, we see that with actual bodybuilding case studies that most of the guys that have underwent uh, contest prep. Now, mind you, let's not extrapolate this gen pop because they're not getting that lean. But if you get extremely mm -hmm. lean, you're going to see hypogonadal levels. So meaning you are under the base level for a healthy testosterone range. So your, your anabolic hormones are in the gutter. You're gonna see your catabolic hormones through the roof. It's gonna make um, gaining muscle a lot less efficient and you're not gonna be in a good phase. So that's why we really have to prioritize recovery post-diet and restoration of your metabolic rate, your hormonal profile, and just how you feel because a lot of times we end diets and we're super food focused. We have a lot of lethargy and lack of energy. Our training performance is, is in the trash. Those, that's the least time that you're going to be able to squeeze out some gains. So we actually, you know, for years, I believed in that. And then eventually, I'll tell you personally, I saw it in myself. 
Uh, I had a terrible post-contest rebound my first two shows, and I didn't understand why because I was doing exactly what I was being told. I didn't right. cheat off planning, but I ate an excess amount of food. I was ramping up my carbs every week, and like you said, first couple of weeks, you feel great. You're getting better pumps in the gym. You know, you look fuller, you look bigger, and you see like this, this increase in scale weight as well as size, and, you think, and in the beginning, you stay lean. And what you don't realize is you're restoring depleted water, especially when you've competed and you've depleted your water, but also you're restoring the, your glycogen storage that has been depleted during the process of dieting. You're not gaining any mass, but sooner or later, you know, within a couple of weeks, you notice, oh, wow, my abs are gone. And, and at 10, 15 pounds I gained, I thought it was muscle and it's not. And that happened to me twice. And finally I said, not doing this anymore. And luckily we were starting to get more um, information and, and reverse dieting was becoming more prominent. So I, I switched to that type of um, philosophy and I would spend the first eight to 12 weeks in a reverse dieting phase, slowly titrating up calories. Once my metabolic profile was restored, once my hormonal profile was restored, then I would go into a surplus and I would see that I would start regaining tissue better. And I also did not gain excess fat tissue. However, it actually took until 2017 and it was Eric Trexler who you mentioned that looked at uh, competitive bodybuilders to see what happens when they exit uh, a prep phase. So essentially what he did was he looked at uh, the post-diet or post-contest period for 15 male and female physique competitors in the four to six weeks following their competition. So how he did this was he measured their, their blood markers one week before, one week post-competition, and then four to six weeks post-competition as well. In the post-competition period, one week post-show, he saw an average increase of, I believe, two kilograms of scale weight, which they measured as lean mass. But here was the thing. It wasn't lean mass in terms of muscle tissue. It was actually water and glycogen replenishment, not a accrual of muscle tissue. Then from there, in the four to six weeks to follow that, they only saw purely fat gain. They did not gain any lean tissue whatsoever. So, so we see that in, yeah, in contest dieters, that are doing everything right. These were high level natural competitors that are training sufficiently, eating a high level of protein. Their, their training is on point. All these different variables are lined up. They cannot gain lean tissue. So what I really try to get across, especially like my lifestyle clients and stuff, don't chase like that magical rebound because it's not there. You're going to gain fat in the process. Now, what they also saw in that study was that uh, their resting metabolic rate increased as a result of the overfeeding, but it wasn't enough to offset their increased calorie intake. And Actually, what they saw that was really interesting was the participants that gained the most fat mass, so those that gained the most weight, actually had the lowest restoration of their testosterone levels. So there was a correlation between a, a rapid increase in fat mass and, and testosterone levels staying low. So we see that this is a negative effect in all aspects. So you're regaining fat, you're not regaining muscle tissue, you put a bunch of weight on the scale, and you didn't even recover your hormone profile as as well as those that took a more slow and methodical approach, which kind of leads me, you know, I'm extrapolating a little bit, but I like the, I don't want to say a slower approach, but I like a more strategic, you know, um, restorative approach focused on recovery, getting you back to your new maintenance and building from there, increasing energy expenditure. And I know in our next episode, we're going to go through, you know, the post-dieting period, how to mitigate this, how to navigate out the, the post-dieting period and how to make sure you're not gaining excess fat because some fat gain is necessary, especially when you've gotten super lean, but going excessive, we've seen all, you know, I've, I've went over the data with you guys that it's, it's something that isn't necessary, but it's highly probable. So we need to do our best because if we're dieting, especially like my lifestyle clients, people, gen pop out there, if you're dieting to improve your physique and maintain a new lifestyle, you really need to realize that 
what you do after the diet is just as important as what you did during the diet. I couldn't agree more, dude. That is such a key piece of this. And even any client that hops on board that we go through the entire fat loss process and then, hey, I'm like, well, I'm good. I'm going to dip. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like this is, of course, we want you to feel empowered to go off on your own. And it's great if you feel good. But I want to make sure there's a plan in place, not just, okay, cool, I did the thing. I'm going to go back to how I was living before, right? Because otherwise that is, again, what's setting you up to be in this situation. As you said, like if you don't have a plan, then it's, the odds aren't in your favor. Yeah, no, I know we're going to dive on this in the next one, but I make sure that anytime I have a client that's dieting, I educate them well in advance. And I'm mm-hmm. saying, say that they have a goal, it's their wedding, or they have a vacation, and we're three, four, six weeks out, say. I'm always letting them know, listen, we're doing, this is, we're going to have this phase for four to six more weeks or three to four more weeks. But after that, right. the phase after the post-diet phase, the recovery diet or the reverse diet, whatever you want to categorize it as. And that's based on how lean they got and, and really what their biofeedback is like. However, that's just as important. So I make sure that their contracts with me extend to that period because the last thing that I want to do is, is leave someone out, especially when they don't have the education level. We're in a place like I, I met, went over all these metabolic adaptations. Your hunger is super high. You know, you're, even there's research that shows that your height, your um, sensitivity to food signals and food cues is increased during and after a diet. So you're more susceptible to make poor, poor food choices. And, and if you go from this, you have this black and white mindset of being on the diet and off the diet, you know, mm-hmm. diet food and non-diet foods, and you start eating hyperplatable foods, we see in a recent study by Kevin Hall that just by eating hyperplatable foods, you know, processed foods in comparison to uh, whole foods, that Ad libitum, the same participants over eight calorie, uh, 500 calories more per day than when they were given unlimited intake of whole foods. So that can easily add up. That's one pound of fat gain per week. And now mind you, those are people that were not dieted. So imagine how much that could be exacerbated if someone is in a dieted state where we actually see some research also by Kevin Hall that shows for every kilogram of fat mass loss, your hunger increases by approximately 100 calories. So if you lost 22 pounds or, you know, 20 pounds, which is 10 kilograms, you could have an increase in um, your perception of hunger by a thousand calories. So couple that together, 500 calories from eating processed foods and a thousand calorie increase in hunger, you're at 1500 calories a day and you're racking it up. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, even for being there, I remember the end of my first photo shoot, I got down, normally I'm like 210, 215 and relatively lean. I got down to 185 and just the post-diet period after that, I remember just I was so fucking hungry. Like I remember I was always eating spoonfuls of mustard, zero calorie condiment, just because I was so hungry. And then I remember this one day specifically just coming home from training and just being so damn hungry, just smashing so many rice cakes. And I looked at, I plugged it in my fitness pal and I had like already hit my calorie goal for the day. And it was like 11 AM, but it's so easy to see again. Like if you don't have structure around that, how easy it is to just, again, have this overshooting effect. So as we talked about before, we're going to turn this into a two-part episode or two-part series, I should say. So anyone listening along, Brandon, I'll have you plug where everyone can find you as well. Please, any questions you have, and I'm going to get this out ASAP. This will probably drop tomorrow because I want to get time to get in plenty of questions on this. Any questions you have as listeners, DM them to Brandon or myself on Instagram. I'm at, at Jeremiah Bear, and we'll make sure that we get those answered in this upcoming show as well. So do you want to tell everyone just where they can find you and where they can hit you up? Absolutely, Jeremiah. So like Jeremiah hit on, we're going to make this a two-part series. I do want to put a caveat in there. 
guys, yes, there are a lot of drawbacks to certain dieting approaches. This is not dieting in general. This is when you diet improperly. However, the best thing about this is awareness is the first step to avoiding a lot of these mistakes that many of us, Jeremiah and myself included, have made. So doing this two-part series is not only educating you on what happens during a diet and how susceptible and likely people are to regaining a lot of fat mass post-diet, but we're also going to go through a practical application. And so that you guys can avoid this if you are dieting. It's summer right now, so it's a perfect time period so that you guys can avoid the dreaded post, you know, diet weight regain that so many of us experience and have, you know, it's given us a bad taste in our mouth. So realize this, when I put out this, this information and when I jump on these podcasts, it's to bring awareness and education, but not to, you know, inspire like fear. What I really am trying to do is educate people and make them more aware of things that are going on that they don't know the mechanisms of action behind. Because when I've explained this to clients and I've utilized a lot of the tactics and the strategies that we're going to cover in our next episode. We've been able to avoid the chronic yo-yo dieting and the mistakes they've made in the past. And now they've had a great experience, not only with dieting and with their ability to maintain a sustainable and lean muscular physique, but they also have a much better relationship with food because they don't see things in this rigid restraint mindset where they either have to overly restrict themselves to maintain a good physique or they go off the bandwagon and then they destroy or they erase essentially all the hard work that they put in. So guys, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, best place to find me is on Instagram at Brandon DeCruz underscore uh, or by email at uh, uh, fitness at gmail.com. Perfect. I will link all that up in the show notes. And again, we'll be talking to you guys again very shortly. Brandon, this was another fire episode. Thank you for being here, dude. Absolutely, brother. Always my pleasure.